And I got to tell you about a story uh, that I want to begin with that's going to sort of capture our minds, I hope, throughout this entire message. And I want you to hear this really carefully, and I want you to, I want you to get the metaphor down in your mind, because you're gonna, I'm going to return to it a couple times as we go through this. Robert Louis Stevenson, you probably are familiar with his name, you may remember, he's the Scottish author of Treasure Island, they made a movie uh, out of that book, fantastic, fantastic book. When he was a little boy, he was looking out the front window of his home. And he was fascinated. Now, you got to get your imagination because this is kind of alien for most of us. I say that tongue-in-cheek. You'll see why in a minute. He was looking out the window, and he's fascinated by a lamplighter coming down the street lighting old-fashioned gas street lamps. Now, the tongue-in-cheek part was, or maybe a few of you that were around then, no names. That really fell flat, didn't it? That was terrible. What an awful beginning. He called to his grandmother. They call him Nana in Scotland. Nana, come quickly. And here's the metaphor. You ready? There's a man coming down the street punching holes in the darkness. Now, I want you to remember that metaphor. I think that's beautiful. And we're going to see how Jesus punches holes in the darkness. John chapter 8, 12, we're going to look at the setting, we're going to look at the saying, and we're going to look at the significance. And the first point, the setting. And here it is in verse 12, the first part of it. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Now I need to help you understand what is happening when he said this. And I hope by the, in the next 12 to 15 minutes, you're going to feel like you're there in Jerusalem. I want you to feel what it's like, and I'm going to give you a few pictures. One is a drawing, but a few are charts, not to be technical or scholastic, just to get you in Jerusalem. Because when he spoke this saying, he was in Jerusalem, it is the fall. Probably September, October. It's about six months before he's going to be crucified. Now you get the timeline down, he doesn't have much longer. Luke says nine months before he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. So he already, three months before this, was on his way to Jerusalem. It's six months, he's going to be crucified. And what's happening at this point, at this time, was one of the three great festivals of Israel. Now they say every major Jewish holiday, here's how you sum it up. They try to kill us, we won, let's eat. Every one of them. Feasting and festivals were all part of the warp and the woof of Israel's celebration of their God. Well, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's six months before he's been going to be crucified. He's at and attending the festival of the booths. Now, sometimes it goes by tabernacles or Sukkot or season of our joy. I'll give you another one in a little bit. And it's the most joyful of all their feasts. So I want you to get the joy now. I want you to feel it for a moment. I want you to, to understand you're, you, he's heading, he's in Jerusalem. There's a great festival. I'm going to give you a lot more information in a minute. This is the most joyful festival of the Jewish people. Six months previous was Passover. 
And at Passover, they had dedicated their crops to the Lord in offering to him the first and the best portion of the harvest. But now their storehouses are full. Now their, bar their barns are full. The Feast of Tabernacles is all about their God has provided for them. They're celebrating their God's provision and his protection and its guidance. Never, now listen, this is key, never at any other time of the year is Jerusalem more crowded. There are thousands of lean-tos or booths dotting the city, but way overflowing and overfilling the city. They are all over the Mount of Olives, and as you approach the city of Jerusalem, there are all of these booths, hundreds, thousands of them everywhere. So they lived in these booths for eight days and nights, and they're remembering the Exodus journey when God provided for their forefathers, guiding them with a pillar of fire and a cloud for 40 years. Now I want you to picture yourself, you're among the thousands of pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. If you're a man or a boy of 12 years old and older, you're commanded to go to these feasts three times a year. This is one of them. And you're traveling to Jerusalem, and as you crest over the Mount of Olives, your eye sees the city of Jerusalem. It is drawn to the towering temple high up on the mount. It's the very center of all the festivals. See, the temple complex in Jerusalem was massive. It was beautiful. 35 acres big. Now, I want you to get that. Ready? A picture in your mind. If you can picture 35 acres. If you're familiar with our Gradwell Switch property, that's 39 point something acres. This is nearly as big as that. My home, we have a half an acre. This is 35 acres large. The entire temple complex. It's massive. And the western wall of the Temple Mount, it's 1,500 feet long. The temple itself, 16 stories high. That's the, the temple where you've got the holy place and the most holy place. That's 16 stories tall. The western wall was massive, the temple was high, and as you are approaching Jerusalem, you're going to visit the temple and you walk up a set of stairs and as you walk up that set of stairs, you're going to ascend 30 feet to get to the Temple Mount. That's the, where the entire complex is built upon. And you enter into the court of Gentiles. It's as far as any non-Jewish person can go. And as the Jews proceeded into the Temple complex, they're going to enter into the court of women. Now, I want to talk a lot about the court of women because where Jesus was standing when he utters verse 12 is in the court of women. It was a square shaped 233 feet on each side room able to hold 6,000 worshipers. It's called the court of women, not because it's a woman-only court. It's as far into the temple as women could go. No Gentile could go into this court, only Jewish men and women. And if you want to get a perspective of the size of the court of women, a football field is 360 feet long, if you include the end zones. It's 160 feet wide. Well, this court was 233 feet on each side. It's a square. It's massive. It's huge. 
And there's four chambers, one in each corner, and each is a square, each chamber 60 feet to a side, and they're used to store various implements of worship. They're, if you have a skin infection, you want to go to the temple, you can't offer a sacrifice. If you've got a skin infection, you've got to appear before a priest, and the priest needs to announce that you're free of that infection, and then you can go in, if you're a man, into the court of Israel to offer your sacrifice. One of those rooms was dedicated for the priest to examine you. And inside this court of women, this massive room within the temple, were 13 trumpet-shaped collection boxes called the treasury. It's where you put your offerings. But I want to draw, and if you look very closely at this picture, I want to draw your eye to the lampstands. These were the candelabra. There's four of them. Now listen to this. They're 76 feet high each. And every evening during the festival of booths or Sukkot, these lamps were lit. And the Levites and the priests, along with the musicians of every type, they would start in the court of Israel and they would make their way down into the 15 steps, down into the court of women, and they would stop beneath these lampstands while thousands of worshipers filled the court, this court and in the outer courts of the court of Gentiles. The court of Gentiles could hold 35 to 40,000 people. And each of these giant candelabra had four bowls at the top. So there's 16 lamps now, four on each of the four candles. And they're filled with oil that young priests would have climbed a ladder to the top earlier each day of the festival. They would have each taken 10 gallons of oil and they would have filled each of those four or each of the 16 lamps. The wicks for these lamps, these 16 bowls, were made from the worn out linen robes of the priests. But once you light these candles, the priests and the Pharisees, they would pick up torches and they would dance and they would juggle and the people would celebrate throughout the night while the musicians played. In fact, the Talmud, the book of Jewish tradition, wrote, he who has not beheld the celebration has never seen joy in his life. Now I want you to feel like you're there. I want you to imagine that you're under these candelabra. You're with thousands of worshipers. It's the most joyful festival. You're celebrating your God in Jerusalem, in the temple, and light is everywhere around Jerusalem. You see, the light, now get this, ready? Now if you've not been really listening yet, now is where you dial your mind in. See, there's a significance to the light. It symbolized the Shekinah glory of God. It symbolized the pillar of fire at night by which God led his people Israel through the wilderness and comforted them with his presence. That's why they lit these lamps. And here comes Jesus, punching holes in the darkness of this world. Now that's the setting Let's move to point number two, the saying. And here's what he said. I am the light of the world. You've got to hear this with the ears of the Jewish people. Now, this is terribly difficult for us. Now, if you wonder why I go into all this background of culture, it's because you can't 
take 21st American cultural mindset and transcribe it onto the scriptures. You've got to let the word of God breathe. You've got to let the word of God speak. So it's really important to hear what I'm about to tell you as best you can with Jewish understanding. The, the emotions that they would have felt as Jesus said, I am, are all over the map. Now let me explain why. First of all, John writes this in the emphatic Greek tense. Now that's really a bunch of gobbledygook, except it's important because what he's really saying is this, I and I alone in the light of the world. Now, if I were you, I would write that in the margins of your Bible. I and I alone am the light of this world. That's what Jesus just said. Now, you lose that in the transference into the English. That's why I'm bringing it back. In the Greek, he would have said, I and I, am, I alone am the light of this world. It's very emphatic, very definitive to Jesus. And it brings the Jewish people, now you ready? You're a Jewish mind for a moment, you've got a Jewish mind. It would have brought them immediately back to that fiery bush where God told Moses to tell Israel, I am has sent me to you. It would have taken them straight back. I mean, this is how incredible this statement is. I am the light of the world would have taken the Jewish person, the Jewish worshiper, right back to that bush that's on fire. God speaks from it. He tells Moses, go speak to Israel. Tell them I am has sent you. And what Jesus is doing in this saying, he's saying, I'm the one that was in that bush did you hear what I just told you? This is what, now listen, you got to get the emotions of the Jewish people. Jesus just claimed to be Yahweh. Yahweh is the greatest name for God that the Jewish people had. And he's saying, I'm Yahweh. I and I alone am Yahweh. I am the light of this world. Very significant what he says the light of this world, especially in this festival. John uses the imagery of light. He describes Jesus 16 times in this gospel as light. Now I want you to hear that again. 16 times. How many candelabra are there? Four. How many bowls on top of each? Four. 16 of them in total. Very ironic, very interesting. And the great message is this, God has come to dwell among us. But it's in the great festival of booths, which also goes by the Feast of Lights, that's another name for it, which remembers their ancestors who lived for 40 years in these booths. When they left Egypt and they went all the way to the promised land, they kept living in these booths. So this festival is to go back to their ancestors who lived in booths as they, as they journeyed to the promised land. And during that journey, by day there was a pillar of cloud, by night there was a pillar of fire. And that was God in the sky guiding his people, delivering his people, protecting his people, comforting his people with his presence but back to the festival for a moment the final evening remember I told you this is an eight day eight night festival the final evening of this festival one of the lamps was not lit three were one wasn't 
12 bowls were, four weren't. And that one that was not lit, now listen to this, that one lamp that was not lit was called the Messiah lamp. And to the Jewish people, that was their cry to God. Let the Messiah come. The one who will deliver us, let him come. We're worshiping you. We're we're praying in expectation that you're going to come. You're going to deliver us. You're going to save us. That Messiah lamp, not lit, was a symbol that he had not yet come. Now, I want you to get this. It's the next day... While the smoke from these lamps still lingered in the air that Jesus said, I am the light of this world. I was and I am the Messiah. That lamp was pointing to me. He's claiming to be the Shekinah, the pillar of of fire, the glorious presence of God. Not just to light the Jewish people with hope, but to light the entire world. This is a worldwide call of Jesus. You know, according to Jewish tradition, there are 70 nations in the world. And during this festival of Sukkot, or festival of booths, they sacrifice more animals than in any other festival. And at one point, they sacrificed 70 bulls. And the reason that they sacrifice 70 bulls is they sacrifice one bull for each nation, asking God to bring his mercy and his grace to that nation. It's a reminder of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, Israel, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, it was always through Israel that God wanted to bring the light to all the nations. It's through Israel that God wants to save the world. That was their mission. That was their calling from God. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, the one that we're reading, that he came to shine the light to the worldwide sea of humanity. Look what he said. I am the light of Israel. Now look at your text. He did not say that. I am the light of the world. It's the worldwide call of the gospel, which is shrouded. The world is shrouded in darkness without the life and the joy of salvation. It's a dark world bound in the shackles and the blindness of sin. In fact, the rabbis declared that the name of the Messiah was light. Did you hear that? The rabbis before Jesus claimed that the name of the Messiah was light. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. To a rabbi, this was explosive. Are you telling us that you're God? And Jesus says, I am. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. Isaiah 60, verse 19, this is what it's going to be when the Messiah comes. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 27, when I sit in darkness, the Lord, that's Yahweh, will be a light to me. Jesus is fulfilling all of these. He's making a clear claim to be Yahweh, the Messiah. Now I'm getting to now, I think, the best part. I've given you the setting. It's in the Jerusalem. It's in the Feast of Festival of Booths. Incredibly joyful. Within the court of women with these four gigantic candelabra with four bowls on each, 16 lamps on all. I've given you the saying 
It's emphatic in the Greek, I and I alone in the light of the world, not just the light of Israel, but the light of the world that's through Israel that you're to bring the saving mercy of God. I'm here for the world, and I am the one that was in that burning bush. But now he's getting to the significance, and we're going to follow that along. You know, we've got a lot of talented artists in the church. My daughter is one of them. And one of the projects she did in her senior year, you'll see up on the screen, began with a black-coated scratch board. And she used an etching pen to etch away this picture of this old, wizened man. And I want you to see how she brought the light and separated it from the darkness to really bring the emotion and the character, almost the angst, of a life that's lived a long time into that picture. But it's not just Carissa. We've got Pat Millen, who is amazing as an artist. This, hang, this painting that she did hangs in my office. She gave it to me. And she's an expert on using light and shadow in her art to draw emphasis. She's really not doing anything new because Rembrandt is really the one that professionalized this. He used light to draw the eye in a form of art called, it's hard to pronounce this, chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro, it's a form of art where you use light and separate it from darkness to bring emphasis to a perspective. Well, John, being as skilled as he is, use light and darkness in his writing, and it's nothing new. It's been happening in the entire Bible. Light and dark are woven through the, through the scriptures. Now, I want you to look at me for a moment. This is really critical. In fact, can I ask? Nobody's ever going to do this, but I'm going to ask anyways. Can I ask that you just start in Genesis? Look it up on the internet. Just Google light in the scriptures. It's going to give you dozens and dozens and dozens. And just read through them. This will take you 15 to 20 minutes. But it will give you an understanding of all, all the times this thread of light and this thread of darkness is woven together in the tapestry of the Bible. It starts in Genesis. It doesn't end. It doesn't stop. Literally until Revelation. And it's in all the books. It just keeps coming up. Light and darkness. And they're woven into this gospel narrative story arc. And we've got Genesis, which begins, and if you remember the story of creation, darkness is over the land. That's how Genesis opens. But God created light, and he separated it from darkness. I get the imagery. He created light, and he separated it from darkness, because light and darkness spiritually can never mix. There's always a delineation and a separation of the two. You can't have kind of shadowy light Christians or kind of light, dark Christians. You cannot have that. They separate. They must separate. And light and dark, according to Isaiah, by the way, this is so cool. If you do that Google exercise, you're going you're to see this. According to Isaiah, God says, I formed the light and created the darkness. Have you ever seen that? He tenderly forms the light, but he created the darkness. There's a difference there. He shapes light. Christian, he's shaping you. Because you bear the light. 
but he created darkness. So they're both created properties. They're both properties of this creation, but the Bible gives a metaphorical meaning to each of them as well. So Isaiah begins to foretell the Messiah, and he writes this, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. What on earth is thick darkness? How do you have shades of darkness? But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So you've got dark in here, you've got thick darkness and you've got brightness of rising and light. And you've got really shades of darkness and brightnesses of light. It's a fantastic verse. Now look at me for a moment. He's not talking about physical darkness and physical light. He's talking about spiritual darkness. He's talking about spiritual light. And Paul wrote of this in Romans. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now you're getting the gospel now. This is the gospel language. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Look what it says in verse 21. They didn't honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. All of those three are captured in the phrase, their foolish hearts were darkened. So what's it mean to live in darkness? Well, you just got the description of it. See, darkness is the sinful heart that wants nothing to do with God and has no ability to understand his truth. Now, if you've got an unbelieving friend like I do and unbelieving family members like I do, they're living in darkness and you scratch your head going, why can't you see the truth? They have no ability to see the truth until the light of the world shines on their hearts. You pray for that to happen. See, in the Bible, light leads to life, darkness leads to death. It's really not complicated. It's really not complex. In fact, it's quite simple. Horrifically or joyfully, darkness is going to lead to death. Light is going to lead to life. And if people are to be saved out of this darkness, then God has to again separate light from dark in their hearts. 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now listen, you bear the light of Christ, Christian brother and sister. You're like a flashlight in the hand of God. And God looks at an unbeliever whose heart is darkened, futile in their thinking, cannot give thanks to God, cannot even understand God, really doesn't see that they're lost. They have no capability to see that they're lost. They really can't see the salvation and the mercy of God. They have no capability of it. So God has this flashlight in his hand. It's powered by his son, Jesus, who's the light of the world. And he takes you and he shines on the heart of an unbeliever when you're loving them, when you're serving them, when you're telling them about the hope in Christ. Christ that you have and all of a sudden that light of Christ coming through your life the flashlight shines on their hearts and they've got an opportunity to see the truth that's how it works I think the question might well be asked is your flashlight on well let's just get right down to brass tacks let me just ask this 
Do you have a mission, a personal mission, that you're going to bring the light of Christ to the unbelieving world? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, most Christians don't. They will say they do, they don't operate like they do. Well, if you say you do, how is that strategically and with initiation and initiative and intentionality, how is that happening in your life? Do you see your job as more than a way to make money? Do you see your job literally as your mission field? God planted you there. He put his light in your life. You are his flashlight to shine his light on your coworkers. Do you see your job that way? That is the highest purpose for your career. Do you see your home that way? Why, he gave you those neighbors. He could have put you anywhere. He's given you those neighbors to shine the light of Christ. Why has he put you in this school? Why has he put you in those classes? You do believe he's sovereign, I'm sure of it. So why did God put you in that college? Why, is he, why are you in that dorm room? Why are you among that friendship circle? Why are you in that hobby? Why are you in that group? Listen, it's so simple and it's so beautiful. You're there to shine the light. How do you do it? You love, you serve, you sacrifice. You demonstrate the light that has been shined in your heart. You speak the words of the gospel. You share the story of the Bible. You give glory to Jesus for everything. And Jesus said in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now back to the court of women for a moment right in the middle of this, or actually it's right at the end of the festival. Now let me make this clear because I wasn't real clear with this. Ready? This part I was. The festival is eight days long, eight nights long. On that last night, they only light three of them. When Jesus spoke these words, it's the following morning. The festival just ended the night before. Probably those bowls are still smoking takes a long time for that oil to burn off he's in the temple or the uh, court of the women rather that's in the temple and he speaks these words and what he says let me translate it if you follow me you will walk in my light and i will give you eternal life now let's go back to jewish disciple making for a moment you see only the best students would approach a rabbi and ask for permission to learn from him. And that rabbi would conduct a very rigorous interview. And he would test the young man's knowledge and the ability to know the word of God, to learn uh, his ability to be molded. Listen, they don't take unteachable disciples. So they're testing all of this. And if the student fails the interview, the rabbi graciously says, go home, learn from your father's trade, begin a family. But if you pass the rabbi's scrutiny, you're going to hear two words. It's actually three in English, two in the Greek, follow me, or come follow me in English. And in that very moment of hearing the rabbi say, follow me, the student now becomes a disciple called a Talmud. And his rabbi begins to teach him to become just like him in every way. Just like the rabbi. And listen, the rabbi becomes even closer to the disciple than his own father. He replaces his father. 
And the disciple commits himself to his rabbi. And the rabbi commits himself to his disciple. So to follow Jesus in this great invitation of John 8, 12 is to become his disciple, to have a lifelong relationship of, of obeying Jesus. And to follow him is to be bathed in his light, to be bathed in his presence and the knowledge and the favor of God. His light brings joy, hope, and life. His light reveals that which is cancerous to our souls. His light shows you what it is so that you can move it to him in confession and repentance. This is all of what his light does. And by the way, you know this. You know when God is speaking, he's almost always revealing something that you, not, you need to confess and get rid of. Because it's barring you from fellowship. It's keeping you from joy. So listen, if you commit a sin... Even if it's for the 1500th time, and you bring, you get this, this guilt, this guilt is the Spirit of God shining the light, the Holy Spirit convicting you so that you turn from sin and turn to the light. He's revealing it so that you can have fellowship with Him again. If you confess your sins, He is righteous and just to cleanse your sins, cleanse you from your sins, and restore you from all uncleanness. But there's a flip side to this. See, the one who rejects the light of the world, Matthew 25, Jesus' own words, will be cast into the outer darkness. You ever seen that phrase, outer darkness? That is frighteningly terrifying. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but for the believer, night will be no more. There will, they will need no lamp no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And the heavenly city of Jerusalem will be eternal light, but outside it will be outer, utter darkness. Now listen, let me just boil this down, okay? This is what we do in New York. We did this one year, my brother's done it since. You take your maple syrup, you take the sap first. You have 40 gallons of sap, you boil it down to get one gallon of syrup. So when I say, let's just boil this down, let's just get it down to the very simplest form we can. Every one of us, now listen, just you right now. Don't think of anybody with you. You are either going to spend eternity in the light or eternity in the utter, outer darkness. There's not a third option. You're not going to be spending eternity in a kind of a hazy domain. Or a foggy, misty domain. Or a domain that's bright one day and here comes east and weather the next. Listen, you're either in the light for eternity or you're in outer, utter darkness for eternity. And it completely has to do with, will you respond to verse 12 of chapter 8? Will you follow Jesus and become his disciple and have the light of life. They say that in the festival of booths, there was no courtyard that was not illuminated from the light in all of Jerusalem, so bright it was. 
And this is our assurance, Christian brother and sister, that when you are, when you do come to the light of life, when the Jesus, the Yahweh of the burning bush, the light of the world, the path of the righteousness is like the light of dawn. How exciting is this? Which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Your light, your life, or the light in your life is shining brighter tomorrow than it did yesterday. Because Jesus is shaping you. You're learning to be like your rabbi. You know, I'm almost done, but I want you to hear this one dark, this true story, very ominous night during World War II, there was a U.S. aircraft carrier plowing through heavy seas in the South Pacific, and all the lights were out, every one of them, because they knew there were enemy submarines in the waters. But one of their planes was missing, one of the pilots hadn't made it back yet. Somewhere in that pitch black sky, it was circling over and over, seemingly in a futile search for the carrier, its only landing place, its only hope of not being swallowed by that giant ocean. But the lights were out. The ship's captain, knowing the terrible risk involved, gave the, gave the order, quote, light up the ship. And it didn't take long for that plane to zoom onto that deck like a homing pigeon. What would happen if your life was lit up by the light of the world? Who can make it home into eternal glory because of the flashlight you are in the hand of God? You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's your calling. Christian, listen, that's my calling, that's your calling. So let your life shine the light of Christ, brighter and brighter in the ever-darkening world around us. Light up the ship of your life so those trapped in darkness can find their way to safety in life. You live like this, and you will see our Lord and Savior punching holes in the darkness all around you. I want you to imagine as I close Jesus in that court of women, perhaps thousands, likely thousands. It could fit 6,000 in that room alone. While the four great candles were still smoking, raising his voice with all of them around, going, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Have you come to him in faith? Have you? You're the only one that knows, you and God. Have you come to him in faith, trusting him to forgive you and shine his light in your heart? As we close, you'll see at the bottom of your bulletin, you'll also see on the screen a question. And the question simply is stated like this. How has Jesus brought light into your life? And we're asking that, uh, and several did this last week, many did, we're asking that if any of you would like to, then to email your answer to that question to Christmas at cornerstonechurches.org. And we're going to use several of these in a special Christmas service at the State Theater. You'll see them there during that service. Let's pray.